Well, we are in Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, 28 through 40, which is a well-known passage. It's the triumphal entry, uh, often uh, spoken of or preached about on, on Palm Sunday. We, as is the tradition of our church, just go straight through the Bible. And so there's a lot that happens in the Bible from the time that Jesus enters into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover to just a few days later at his crucifixion. But most of the entire Gospel of John is taken up just recording that section of time, that very brief ministry of Jesus, which is so full of teaching and significance. And so we are at this this morning, and this passage is recorded in all four of the Gospels. And so I'll be referring to some of the other Gospels and their account of this occasion and how they record it, because they record some things uh, different from a little bit different perspective. But what is happening here is that this is the time of the Passover. In the calendar year of the Jew, uh, the Passover was a commanded feast of the Lord. It was a time where they went and remembered the exodus from Egypt, where the Lord brought the people out from slavery. And it was an important time for them to remember what the Lord had done in their midst. But it was also a time where the people looked forward. They looked back to the deliverance of the Lord from Egypt, but they also looked forward to a hope of a Messiah to come. And so nothing is by coincidence with the Lord. Everything is done perfectly and providentially by the work of the Lord. And so Jesus comes in to the time of Passover and makes very known that he is the Messiah. The one that they have been looking for, the time has come for it to be known that he is the Messiah. And so it's also important for us to know that in the chronology of the life and ministry of Jesus, that this also follows right after the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. So when Jesus goes and calls out, Lazarus, come forth, and this man who's been dead days in the tomb comes out and takes off his, his burial clothes and people are beyond astonished. But then other people double down in their hatred for Jesus. That's another subject for another day. But we know from the Gospel of John in John 12, 17 and 18, that a portion, a significant portion of the crowd that is here at the triumphal entry have followed him and are bearing witness to what he did with Lazarus. And as they go around saying, this man raised someone from the dead, that the fame of Jesus is just exponentially growing and people are coming to see who this Jesus is and what it is that he has done. But lastly, this occasion is in the fullness of time. It is the right time, the appointed time for Jesus and all the culmination of his ministry and all that he has taught and all the miracles that he has done and all the things that he has been about. It is now the right time, the appointed time for him to break out into public and be known as the Savior. It is time for him to fully accept worship as the Son of God and to be seen in the public view. There's been much time in the past where Jesus has said to people after he does some amazing thing in healing them, he says, don't go tell anybody about this. And they're like, sure, yeah, Jesus, I won't tell anybody, I promise. And he goes around and tells everybody. And so, but Jesus was keeping himself intentionally out of the public eye because it was not yet the fullness of time for him to come into the public eye. But now is the time, and now is the time for him to be made public because his trial and the declaration of his innocence that this man has done nothing wrong, 
must be seen and heard publicly. And his crucifixion and his atoning death must be something that happens publicly, not something that happens in a corner somewhere that nobody hears about, and it's hearsay. No, no one denies the life and the death of Jesus Christ. It was a very public event. Now, what happens in the resurrection of Christ? Unbelievers hotly debate, but his cross and his trial were very and necessarily public. And so, this triumphal entry is what provokes Jesus' enemies to break out against him. They've been plotting against him for some time, but now they have reached the end of their frustration. And by the working of the devil also, they are going to try to kill him, and they do. But we'll get to that in a little while. So let's, uh, let's look first at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. And so I would ask you to stand to honor the Lord as we read his word. Luke 19, 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet, set, yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Verse 32. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, and they were untying the colt. Its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along, and they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. All right. We've got a number of things going on in this passage. We're going to start with this donkey and what's happening with this donkey. And, and the, this is a fascinating thing. So the first part of it is just the, the interesting way in which Jesus goes about getting this donkey. It is a display of his knowledge and his power. And that he says, I want you to go to this place. You're going to find this thing here, tie it up here. If someone asks you, which they will, then you're going to say this and this is going to happen like that. And you, that no person can do that. Only God can do that. Only one who knows all the events that could possibly happen and is causing something to fulfill, as we're going to see in just a moment, uh, this is what happens. But there are two things I would like to point out about the fact that Jesus knows all things before we keep going into this passage. Jesus knowing everything that is going on should be extremely comforting for those of us who know and serve and love the Lord Jesus. Because often I know that we feel like we are acting and doing things that are not seen by anyone and they are not noticed and they are overlooked. And often when I write notes of encouragement to people, I'll put Hebrews 6.10 at the bottom of it, which says the Lord is not unjust. So it's to overlook the things that you have done for him and the kindness shown to his church. And the Lord does not overlook Look these things. And the scriptures tell us that the Lord's knowledge of the events of our lives for those who serve and love Jesus are for the sake of reward one day. 
which is shocking. Like, we don't deserve any reward for anything because salvation is by grace. And yet the Lord is very clear that there will be a reward for those who are faithful in their service to the Lord because his eye sees these things. And he is one that is working to comfort and strengthen and uphold and ultimately reward the righteous. But this should be a fearful thing for the wicked, the concept that the Lord sees and knows all that is going on. The scriptures say that the darkness is as light to the Lord because he sees all things. And there is no place that we can hide, no door that we can shut, no anonymous website that we can go to that the Lord God does not see the wicked things that are done. And so when it is that the wicked think that they are hiding from the Lord, they are wrong because he will judge the living and the dead. And the scriptures say that Jesus himself will be the judge. He comes as a savior here, but one day there will be judgment. And so I encourage you as we go through this passage today, may you know Christ as your savior, that his eye upon you might be a comforting thing and one that is greatly encouraging, not one that is fearful. But not only does Jesus know what is going on with this donkey and all that is about to happen, but he is in fact causing it to come to pass. What is happening here? So if we look at Matthew chapter 21, the other passage, the passage in Matthew related to this, we see clearly, as Matthew constantly does, is pointing out the fulfillment of prophecy so that the Jew that cared about these things would know what is going on and see the fulfillment. Matthew is connecting the dots. And so in Matthew 21, 4 and 5, it says this. This took place, which is all that's related to this donkey, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, which is the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. If we go over to Zechariah and read it, it's from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So nothing that Jesus did was by accident, and this is certainly not by accident. This is to fulfill what was said about his coming, and a most unusual coming, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But Jesus' fulfillment of this is in an unmistakably divine fashion, which is fascinating. He could have just gone up and gotten the donkey and got on the donkey and rode it into town, but he doesn't. He, he does something special here, and the language that is used is important because he says, the Lord has need of it. He declares himself to be the Lord in sending his, his disciples out to retrieve this donkey, and he does it in a way that he knows is going to be astonishing to them, as recorded here in Scripture for us also to be astonished by. And yet, there is such a confliction to this event because you have this long prophetic fulfillment, this all knowledge, all power causing things to come to pass, but coming to pass not in a way that any of us would ever have planned. What comes to pass is Jesus riding on a donkey saddled by his coats of his disciples, none of which are rich. And so the Messiah, the Son of God, the King, uh, the King in the lineage of David, the Lord himself riding on a donkey into Jerusalem during the Passover. It is a most humble riding in of a king, similar to the most humble 
uh, beginnings of Jesus born in a stable. And so it is not awe-inspiring of itself. It is not fearful as a coming king normally is. And in fact, it is confusing to us in many ways. What is happening here? Why is this happening? If you look at Rome at that very time, at the time that Christ Jesus lived from 29 BC to 14 AD, Octavius Augustus was the emperor of the kingdom of Rome, uh, the emperor of Rome, a massive, massive empire. And he sought to make Rome and did make it the most beautiful city in the world. His boast was this, I found this city as brick, but I will leave it as marble. And he did. And when he came in in a procession, it was not on a donkey. He came in with legions of soldiers, fiercely uh, arrayed and uniformed and great ornate chariots and all the pomp that we would think of as the most important and most powerful person in the world processing in somewhere to make themselves known. Nothing could be further than the way that Jesus processed into the capital city of his people. He came in as a suffering servant, as one of tremendous humility, and he did not come in to make much of himself, but he came in to die for you and for me. He came to be a sacrifice for sin, to lay down his own life that you and I might be forgiven by the justice from the justice of God. But Jesus, again, we go back to the, the confliction and the difficulty of understanding this situation because he comes in, and in him entering Jerusalem, he enters with the wake of many miracles and powerful authoritative preaching and this prophetic fulfillment, and the Pharisees that are there are aware of what has happened, and they are aware of what is going on, and they recognize who Jesus is claiming to be which is the Messiah, the one that has been long promised and awaited for by the people. And these Pharisees that are there hear what these people are saying. And what they're saying is important. We've got to take note of it. I'm going to look at Mark to see a little bit more about what the people say. We're in Mark 11, uh, 7 through 10. And the people say this, And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and they sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road. So I try to visualize this, this circumstance here, this place. Others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields, and those who went before and those who followed after were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means, oh, save, oh, save us, save us to the uttermost. And they're lay, taking off their cloaks. People didn't have a lot of clothes back then, but they're laying them on the ground to be walked on. It's a, it's a sign of honor that they are laying themselves down before Jesus, cutting branches, paving the, the dirty street with something that honors him. It says that he is in the line of David. He is the promised one that they have been waiting for. Blessed is this coming king. And in Luke, which we have been reading in verse 38, it has this interesting phrase which so much mirrors what we hear from the angels at the first coming, the birth of Christ. Verse 38 says, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Very similar to what the angels said at his birth. They are now saying at his kingly arrival into Jerusalem. And so what is this? This is worship, folks. These people are worshiping Jesus. They are saying things of him that are only right to be said of the Messiah, 
of the Son of God, the one that they have been waiting for thousands of years, that they believe that he is the one that they have been waiting for, and they are joyfully proclaiming it. And they are taking off their garments and cutting branches, and they're trying to honor him as best they can. And what is so important about this passage is that Jesus accepts this worship. What happens in verse 39 of Luke 19? These Pharisees see what is happening. They recognize what is happening, and what is their reaction to it? They do not join in. They do not open their mouths. They do not take off their garments and lay them before Jesus. They say, rebuke your disciples. Stop these people from doing what they are doing. What they're doing is blasphemy because they do not believe that Jesus is the Savior. They do not believe in the divinity of Christ. They do not believe in his salvation. They do not believe the words that he has been preaching. They reject him all across the board. And they think that what is happening here is heresy. Because we have examples of this throughout the scripture, of people wrongly directing their worship, and that worship being redirected. And there's many different instances. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples in the Bible. One I think is the most interesting is in Acts 14, where Paul and Barnabas are in this town called Lystra, and they, uh, a miracle is performed, and they're preaching, and they're teaching, and Paul is the one preaching and teaching, and the people think that the Roman gods have come down to them, the Greek gods, excuse me, and they think that Paul is Hermes because he's the one speaking and he's the messenger and they think Barnabas is Zeus because he's just more stoic and standing off to the side and they go and get animals to try to sacrifice to them and worship Paul and Barnabas in the middle of the street and it's about all that Paul and Barnabas can do to stop the crowd from worshiping them and they keep telling him we are not God like we're, we're a messenger for God do not worship us and eventually they get a hold of the crowd. This happens also with angels. I think one of the most interesting occasions is at the last chapter of the Bible in uh, Revelation 22, where John has seen many things, uh, and many of them revealed to him by an angel. And it says in Revelation 22, 8 and 9, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and, uh, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So he gets John up off of his feet and says, I am not, do not worship me. Worship God. Join me with everyone else. He names of various other things. Only one is worthy of worship, and that is God himself. And so no one is worthy of our worship except Jesus because he is perfect and he is righteous and in his, all of his character attributes and all of his person, he is perfect, meaning nothing can be added to him to make him better and nothing can be taken away to make him better. He is, as he exists, perfect and worthy of worship. So Jesus does not heed their rebuke. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Stop them from worshiping you because you're not worthy. But what he says is fascinating. What he says is, if these people stop worshiping me, even the stones will cry out, which means that the Lord Jesus will be worshiped. You will either be one who raises your voice and lifts your heart to worship Jesus or you will be left to the side and others will worship him because he is worthy of worship. 
What happened to these Pharisees who hardened their hearts in their pride and their hatred of Jesus? They were swept away in their sins. And some of them repented. Well, that's uh, the characters for another, another sermon and another story. But those that held to this position would die in their sins. Jesus does not accept their rebuke because he is the Lord and he will be worshipped. One of my favorite passages about this comes from the later prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He tells his people, my name will be exalted. In the name of Jesus will be exalted and you will either join in with those who worship and honor him or you will be left behind. Jesus is worthy and he is true. And so I think the greatest application that comes out of this passage today, the implication for you and I is where do we stand on this? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? We were just worshiping the Lord in song. By the way, there are many ways to worship the Lord, song being one of them. Is your heart, was your heart engaged in that? Or was it disengaged for whatever reason? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Truly, do you believe? Because I think there were six types of people present on that day in the triumphal entry because this, these six type of people are always present. But it's, it, it comes into focus on an occasion like this one where we see Jesus processing intentionally, prophetically into Jerusalem. The first type of person that was there was the true-hearted worshiper, the one that was not ashamed and was gladly saying the things that we've been reading. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Mark says they were saying this loudly. These people were shouting this. This, this, blessed is this Jesus who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, raising their hands. I'm going to take my coat off too and put it in the red. There's, there's a blank spot right there. My coat needs to fill that. I'm going to go chop down a branch and I'm going to get in front. I'm going to wait till he passes by. Then I'm going to run around again and maybe I'll pick my coat up and put it down again. I, I want to see as much of this Jesus as I can see before he passes out of my uh, life. And I can't, I can't see him anymore. And a person that is wholehearted, unashamed, joyful, and glad in their worship of Jesus Christ. These are the people that Jesus was pleased with, and he accepted their worship and was thankful for it. I think the second type of person that was there was the ashamed believer. We know that there were people like this because specifically in John 19, 38, we're given a description of a man called Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, at the end, after the death of Christ, went and, and uh, retrieved his body, and he and Nicodemus, another man that falls in the same category, a person that it says specifically in John 19, 38, was a disciple, but secretly because he was afraid of the Jews. That's an interesting combination, which means he believed, but he was standing back and was ashamed and did not openly act because he was afraid of people. And so that's a very gray area there, folks. But what I'm going to tell you as a minister of the gospel is that you must come to a place where you are no longer ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. I understand that, that people come to faith over a period of time in various ways. 
But there had to come a time in the life of Joseph of Arimathea and of Nicodemus where they were no longer ashamed of Jesus. And they were willing to go out and venture much to associate themselves with Jesus. And they do that in the end. When they go and ask for the body of Christ, they're coming out into the open and being very clear that we believed in this man and we are willing to venture everything for him. Because the other disciples were not willing at that time. But there were people standing, I'm sure, in that audience who would say, man, I, I do believe this, but I also see these Pharisees, and if I go out there and start proclaiming Jesus and get in the middle of this, I'm going to be associated with these people, and I'm just, I'm not, I, I, can't, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. And they stood back, and they did not honor the Lord with their mouth, and that is not okay. They are not in the right place. Let's go to a third person, the disinterested there had to be people who walked by and they were doing some other business and they thought, here is another traffic jam at this gate. Like, how do, what is going on here? This is Jesus, the, the man who's been raising people from the dead and preaching and teaching with such authority that we've never heard anything like this. And you're like, oh yeah, I did. I heard about that guy. I heard, but man, I have got, I have, how far does this go? I need to get around this mess so I can get to somewhere else because I have got business. A person of the worldly mind that does not care a thing about the things of Jesus because all they're trying to do is get done with their business of the day. And that person will die in their materialism, their, their disinterested nature in Jesus as they go about the business of their day. Jesus referred to these type of people often. Fourth and fifth, I think, are most interesting. Fourth, we're going to spend a lot of time on in about five weeks, which is the liars. There was at least one major liar in this audience which was Judas. Judas probably took his coat off and set it on the ground and probably said some of these words. But we know what was in the heart of Judas. He's the exact opposite of the ashamed person, person who, who has an ember of belief, a, 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 as the scripture talks about it, a bruised reed or a smoking, a, a very small amount of faith that is growing versus a person, and they're not showing it, versus a person that has a false show of religion and their heart is dead and hard. Judas was the one who did not believe and his desire to betray the Lord and be done with him was growing and growing in his heart. Whereas just a few days later, he's gonna sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. But likely on that day, because it was a shock to all of them when Judas sold out Jesus. He didn't seem to be an unbeliever until it broke out into the open. He was a liar. And what he was doing was not truly from the heart. And the Lord God is not interested in empty actions of worship. He seeks the true desire of the heart. And if you are here this morning putting on a show of religion for other people to see and you think that God does not know the true nature of your heart, you are wrong. At that table, at the last Passover table, when nobody else knew what was going on with Judas, Jesus looked right at him and said, go and do what you're going to do quickly. Be done with it. It would be better that you had never been born. Jesus knew exactly what was going on in his heart and he is not honored by it. The fifth type of person is the hater. The Pharisees, they had a religious show going on. And Jesus' glory was competing against their glory. And so they wanted to receive this praise that was going to Jesus. And they hated Jesus for taking away from their glory. And so Jesus was a competitor to them. And they wanted to get rid of him. They openly hated him. And so, I'm sorry, I think I said six. But there's five categories. I hope this is helpful for you to see 
spiritually what is going on in the heart because when Jesus makes such clear statements as to what is going on in accepting this situation, it shines a light on our own hearts and where we are in our own lives. Where would you have been in this audience? Knowing what you know now of Jesus and believing what you believe now in Jesus, where would you have been? Because Jesus still lives. We need to understand that. We still worship him today. He is still the Savior. He is still the Son of God. He is still Lord. He is still a coming king. And so we still face every one of these categories. What are we doing in our worship to Jesus? Is it wholehearted and true? Are we standing off in fear? Are we cold-hearted and disinterested? Are we lying? Or are we just straight-up hate Jesus? I don't know where you are this morning, but I think you fall into one of those categories. And I want you to be prepared for the second coming of Christ, because Jesus is coming again. And we talked about this just last week. But you cannot look at this passage and the humility of Jesus coming in on a donkey and the, the difficulty of seeing what is happening here without looking to the second coming of Christ and reading one of the key passages on it where we see that Jesus, when he comes again, he will not be on a donkey and he will not be in a state of humility and he will not be coming to suffer. Instead, it will be a radically different picture. If we look at Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 15, it says this, this is John, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in full fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which... It's to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is a view, amen, yes, of the second coming of Christ. Not coming on a donkey, but coming on a white horse, the, the greatest steed that you can ride on, and he is... His name is faithful and true, and he comes to judge and to make war against the wicked. He does not come in humility. His eyes, as it says so often of the risen, glorified Jesus, are like a flame of fire. That is a, a terrifying thing. Someone whose uh, countenance is full of such great passion passion that it is like a flame of fire on his head are many diadems or crowns he has received the kingdom long promised to him and he is coming to bring unto himself those who he has redeemed he has a name written that no one knows the name of God which shall not be spoken and is unknown to us he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name on which he is called is the word of God fascinating. That's, we go right back to John chapter 1. You know, what is Jesus? He is the Logos, the Word of God that's spoken from the beginning. And 
a mysterious thing, but what we see here in a moment is this sword, it, it, the, the symbolism of a sword coming from his mouth is similar to what the Bible is always called. The word of God is the sword of the Lord. What it, what it means is that the word of God is powerful and it is offensive and it, its action is against the wicked. We think of many times the way the word of the Lord is used in the Bible. When God says, let there be light and there is what? There is light. The word of the Lord causes things to happen because it is powerful. When he calls to that, that tomb with Lazarus in it and says, come forth, he comes forth and life comes into death. When he proclaims over people, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven and you have life with God. And when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, those are words of final death which will never be reversed and so the Lord Jesus is coming again, and he will judge the wicked, and he will bring the righteous, those who love and long for his appearing, those who gladly praise and worship his name, will be brought into his kingdom. And so I urge you this morning with all my heart to not despise the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not harden your heart against worshiping Jesus openly and gladly. Do not love the things of this world, but to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved from the punishment of your sins. Do not be ashamed of Jesus in your workplace, in the way that you live, with your neighbors, with your children. Openly speak the praise of Jesus Christ and publicly claim his name. That's part of what we are doing today here. It's a big part of it. Jesus said that people that come to him in faith should be publicly baptized, that they should say before the world without shame that Jesus is Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ. If you're a person here this morning that has never put your faith and trust in Christ, or you have, and you've never been baptized, I appeal to both of you that you would come to salvation today. But if you have never been baptized, that you would be baptized. That before the watching world, you would proclaim Jesus as Lord and that he would be glorified in what happens. And so uh, let's, let's close and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this passage. This is a, a, just a glorious passage. And we join our voices with the voices of those in the past saying, Hosanna to the King to the one who is the Lord, who is the Savior, that we believe that you are the Messiah. The world is full now as it was then of those who are unbelievers, but by faith we hope in Christ Jesus. Just like the faith of those in the past, we pray that you would strengthen our faith and that as our faith wavers and as it struggles, Lord, may you uphold us, may your word strengthen us. And I pray uh, for those that have not come to salvation, that today they would believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. They would settle it in their heart. They would come out of the shadows. And those that have believed in Christ, but they have been ashamed or too proud or for whatever reason have never been willing to be baptized, that they would be baptized, that they would proclaim to the world that Jesus is Lord and that we would rejoice in seeing others come to salvation. We love you this morning. We long for your appearing, and we pray that you would help and strengthen us until you come. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.